Hey folks, welcome to Narratives. Narratives is a podcast exploring the ways in which the world is better than in the past, the ways it is worse, and the paths towards a better, more definite vision of the future. I'm your host, Will Jarvis, and I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to this episode. I hope you enjoy it. You can find show notes, transcripts, and videos at narrativespodcast.com. Well, Whimsy, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you? Doing great. Thanks you so much for taking the time to come on. Uh, I want to get started. Could you give us kind of a brief bio and some of the big things you're interested in? Yeah. So basically, I'm pretty new to writing on Substack, but I've been interested in topics relating to like um, social issues, um, even a little true crime, but mainly history, philosophy, a lot of the stuff that's adjacent to what is written about on ACX and less wrong. It's always interested me, but I definitely have more of a background in like literature and the classics than, than math. And I've kind of gotten my education there through uh, the rationalist community. Um, but I'm uh, 24 and I've been writing a lot for quite a long time, but I hadn't really published much until I submitted to the um, ACX uh, book review contest. And I, you know, we'll jump right in. I, I really loved that book review. It was, it was truly excellent. And uh, it, it, for, for the listeners that might not have read it, it's uh, it's uh, Down and Out in Paris and London, one of Orwell's books. Um, what do you think is most misunderstood about Orwell? Mm. I think the, the primary thing is that he's a writer of dystopian fiction novels because every high schooler reads um, Animal Farm in 1984. Yes. And they That's miss out. Gets. Yeah, on the rest of his body of work, which is really not nothing like that, in the sense that he's, those fiction novels kind of came later in his career, and he'd done a lot more really interesting and groundbreaking journalism um, long before that. The most famous are probably The Road to Wigan Pier, which is about northern coal miners, um, homage to Catalonia about serving in the Spanish. It's a great book. Yeah, it's fantastic. And then the book I reviewed down and out in Paris and London. I I think what people misunderstand about him and his views on a personal level is he's not a very ideological writer. He's a famous socialist, right? But actually rarely comes up. And that's something I admire. Like in Wigan Pier, he divides his books in a very like um, almost artificial way that actually serves his cause. Well, like in road to Wigan Pier, there's half of the book uh, discussing what's happening with the coal miners. And then there's the second half talking about what he thinks might be reasonable socialist solutions. But he divides them cleanly and is completely upfront about the failures of like socialist movements up to that point to deal with the issues, the failures of the ruling party to, to face those issues. So I think his self-awareness is underrated, definitely. Um, yeah, I, I think that's that's super well put do you think any of his his political worldview is painted by the fact that you know he was uh, you know quite poor living in paris and and london and for this this time during his life yeah um it, you know reading the book i felt like he was definitely not he hadn't formed his political view at the time of writing gotcha but, but by the time of sort of finishing the book i guess after living that life he'd start to come to a few ideas about what it was like to be poor. 
but again, he does a great job of limiting his conclusions to very reasonable things. He doesn't say because the homeless in Paris and London are living this way, we need a socialist state in England. He says, because they're living this way, we should get rid of these workhouse programs that are run so horribly. Like he advises like, instead of giving them toast and coffee, which is such a meager diet, it actually is like making your mental faculties so bad you can't hold a, a difficult job. So he just recommends create gardens to give them better food. So he does these very like small incremental suggestions of policy that I think make him a lot more like trustworthy in a way. Gotcha. He's not like burn it all down. It's like on the margin, you know, yeah, absolutely. should be giving people better food, et cetera. Right. And he, he keeps his, um, if, if he does go into ideas of policy, he keeps it like he earns it by saying, here's what I observe at say a workhouse. Here are the worst parts about it. And here's why they should obviously be changed. You know, when I read the book review and I haven't read that actual book, I got the sense that the experience of poverty in um, Paris was very different from that of his experience of poverty in London. Can you talk about like any broad lessons you drew from that and kind of the situation there? Yeah, that's, I was actually just rereading the review just to prepare for this talk. And that's how I open it is talking about um, how it's the story of using social services that are horrible and then of living in a state with no access to social services, but working like a slave essentially to survive. And Orwell pulls no punches in expressing that living in Paris as like a poverty wage restaurant worker is a far better life than living as a sort of subsidized transient homeless person in England. And so I think the broad takeaways were that um, kind of a classic self-help takeaway, which is, I guess, somewhat controversial to talk about in this context, that subjectively, you're not made miserable just by the fact that you're working all day. Not that it's a good thing at all, but Orwell is saying in that life, yeah, he comes home exhausted, but at least he has social relationships and bonds. He goes drinking every Sunday and there are tens of thousands of other people in Paris living this life that's reasonably okay and can at least be said to be a life. Meanwhile, in England, where there's this class reliant on these really strange like workhouse places where you can't actually work. He call they're called the spike um, where you basically get food and you just have to sit in this big cell all day. It's not any kind of life. And it's actually like making these people get locked in a cycle of moving from spike to spike to spike. Um, so I guess the broad takeaway was that even what seems like a really robust uh, like infrastructure for, for giving like homeless people a place to stay can actually create way more subjective misery. I think that was, I, I think that was the best point you could pull out of that. And it's, it's really, it's, it's almost counterintuitive, right? It's like, uh, you know, you, you're trying to help people and you, you're giving them something, you're giving them, uh, it's a more robust safety net than existed in Paris. And yet people are somewhat worse off, which is, uh, it, it's almost a counterintuitive, uh, conclusion, but I, I think does make sense in the context of, um, what you just talked about, you know, having these community bonds, you're not forced to move around all the time. Um, it was very, very, very interesting. Now, what were the situations that led Orwell to live in this manner? Yeah. Okay. So 
that that was kind of an interesting hazy part of the book that I tried to like pick apart. Yeah, because there was definitely this thought that I believe he was upper middle class, like yeah. on the on the very edge of upper class, where his dad worked in India, which was an upper class thing, but pretty much the most the least respect respectable upper class thing one could do. Um, and so he basically moved to Paris and like with a small amount of money and then he was robbed. Uh. So he was essentially trapped, but I'm pretty, he kind of alludes to the idea that he wanted to try this anyway. Interesting. So he kind of says, well, I've had an idea of trying this. Now I'm just going to settle into this life for a while. Whereas in London, he's again kind of trapped where he has a connection that can get him a job taking care of a um, mentally handicapped person. But the job is then delayed. And so they said, well, we actually can't get anything for you for three months. So you just need to stay in London and wait, essentially. So and in that case, he does openly say, um, I could have gone back to my parents. I could have finagled my way back to them, but... I, I do believe him when he says the humiliation of that made it worth it. The humiliation of going back to his parents at that age, um, plus his, inter- his interest in these social issues kind of added together to him kind of resigning himself to it for a while. Um, yeah, so I think those are the main, the main factors that led to it. I'm just, I wish I knew how self-consciously he knew I'm writing a book right, right. now. Uh, but I don't know that, unfortunately. And, and how old was he at the time? I believe he was around somewhere between 23 and 25. Gotcha. Gotcha. Right, I believe right out of um, one of my favorite things Oral wrote, shooting an elephant about his time in the Indian Imperial Police. Um, he hated that job, served there five years from like 18 to 23. And I think right after he came back from India is when all this happened. I see. I see. Well, and I... I was really interested when I read the review because there's a there's a great British TV show which name escapes me right at the moment, but they talk about you know doing the Orwell, which is pretending to be poor and like going out and about and and so it's your sense that he was truly forced to be poor or did he have kind of a, a safety right like uh you know he had an ejector seat in some sense. He definitely had an ejector seat when compared to the people he's associating with. It's night and day, gotcha. but. I, he, I don't view him as a tourist at he's, all. He's not like a true tourist is one. But, but yeah, he is trapped there and it would be very difficult for him to escape without facing like untold humiliation by returning home to his parents, at least in the case of London. In the case of Paris, because of transportation costs, I mean, he might have been truly stuck. Like truly stuck. Yeah, but in either case, it's definitely, he's fairly upfront about it that he could escape from it if he really really wanted to but it's not a matter of starvation and that he is sort of making a conscious choice better to live like this than to go back home got it got it another portion of the review i thought was was quite interesting was uh, you know you talked about how he was in london in one of these houses and how he was often treated much better than everyone else because um when when you know the officials there uh, suspected he was a you know some higher class did, did you draw any takeaways from that? Yeah, it's something that's difficult to understand as an American, I think, on an intuitive level. Um, even now in England, I think it's not quite as strong as it was. But he's he speaks about um, what's interesting is he he's treated better only by 
other upper class people. Uh. So like when he's at one of these spike workhouses, one of the like bureaucrats hears his voice and is like, well, what happened to you, sir? How have you fallen to this position and give some extra food and right. treats. But Orwell interestingly points out that the tramps don't care at all. The other tramps uh. calls them. They really don't react. He actually goes into that was his primary fear going into this experience was that I'm going to be found out. People are going to just see I'm a tourist that I'm doing some weird, like almost cosplay or something. Yeah. Uh, and it's not the case at all. As soon as he has a dirty face and dirty clothes, he disappears into the mass and the, the tramps don't care about his voice. People on the street don't care or even notice it vanishes for everyone except he says like military men and a few chosen like upper middle-class bureaucrats do favor him a little bit. I see. Which is interesting. You would think that the other tramps would think would, would treat him differently, but apparently right. not. They don't, don't. It's quite interesting kind of sociological critique there and an exploration could you talk about the skid houses a little bit because i i think it might be useful to listeners just to just to understand what it was like living in the uk if you were quite poor in orwell's time oh the sort of flop houses where yes into a room yeah oh man i think that's i remember citing a might be my largest quotation in the review because of how horrible (laughs) this description is of he's got like three 70-year-old pensioners with hacking cough sleeping next to you. You know, no one is bathing. There's like an old woman like banging the pots and pans in the kitchen preparing breakfast at three in the morning. Um, you, It's basically, again, that's what's so interesting to me in this review is how the conditions build into you being unable to escape them, which is the cycle we imagine, but we, we get it in really concrete terms when he talks about how the food makes your mental faculties deteriorate. And the lack of sleep from living in a place like that makes you useless. He can't like get anything done. And he kind of just wanders the streets in this kind of haze, as we see homeless people do today in many cases. And not actually because of mental illness, like we might imagine, but because of these material uh, like deficiencies in their body and health and things like that. Um, It's been a while since I read the book, but I definitely remember his focus being on how horrible it smells how many people are packed in and how it's basically impossible to sleep unless you have a job. So backbreaking that you're just destroyed at the end of the day, then it kind of works. Right. And, and there's, there's a bunch of interesting rules as well, right? Where people had to move around at, at a certain, uh, some cadence. Is that correct? Oh, okay. Yeah. So two separate ideas, I guess it's good to, to, to separate. So there's the sort of like flop houses, which is basically just like, a really horrible hostel almost okay, gotcha. for older for mainly for older men that are on the brink of homelessness that can pay a few quid a day to stay there and get like one meal. And then there are the spikes, which are more like homeless shelters that, yeah, you have to move at a certain cadence, which he describes as very destructive. And I think that's the part of the book where I realized this would be a great candidate for people that read ACX because it's talking about how system design has created the, the sort of English image of the wandering transient tramp. Right. Like, wandering like that because they have to move daily from spike to spike. Um, the conditions in there are, I describe it as Kafkaesque because they sit in a big white room with their cup of coffee and they're not allowed to do anything. 
They can't play cards. They can, they don't really have the energy to just talk and chat. So they just kind of are in this white box, just sitting there all day. And then they get to leave. It's about as bizarre as it is. Yeah. It's like living just to, to live another day in, in this like clinical white box. It's very, very strange. And, um, it's surreal to read. And I think I include a picture. I tried to find a picture, but these are actually kind of overshadowed by the history of the British workhouse. You know, like we think of Ebenezer Scrooge and Charles Dickens yeah. and workhouse where they're actually laboring where the spike that was more 19th century. Whereas the spike was like late 19th century, early 20th century. And um, it, it's much more of like a prison, a 24 hour prison where you get food. You don't do any work or anything like that. And it's not widely discussed. Um, I'd never heard of it before. Um, people in my family who love British television, they'd never heard of it. Yeah. It's fair. It's, I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, enjoyed, I didn't enjoy these people suffering, but yeah. enjoyed uh, thinking about how, like you said, uh, the incentives design created like this, this, this image of this, this wandering homeless person suffering from homelessness who, um, you know, is kind of driven to move from place to place because of the way the system's designed, even though it's meant to help them, you know, yeah. it's a very classic Moloch case. It's fascinating also how it relates to like the day-to-day problems of the tramp. Like one thing he focuses on is shoes and how, because you're forced to walk so much, your shoes and socks were out first. And so there's this great sequence where this seasoned uh, homeless person shows him how you can use ink to fill in the holes on your shoes and socks. So you could go in for a job interview and it'll be just enough that they won't notice for the job interview. So you'll be able to get it. So they'll know you're poor, but not that poor. Right. So Which the way you are caught up in like our archetype of this, of a poor person is really interesting. Uh, yeah, these societal expectations. And and you contrast this with, um, and Orwell does, and, and in the review with uh, Orwell her- working in this hotel in Paris. Can you talk about that a little bit? It seems like this really just crazily chaotic environment um, with, uh, I, but, but it does seem to be at some level, like at least sustainable. Yeah. So that's when I first fell in love with the book, because that, that section has a weird cozy aspect yeah. to it. He's working, it's almost like something out of like a Miyazaki movie, like Spirited Away or something in my mind where um, he walks in and there's like roaring fires. He's in like a sub sub basement over this grand hotel. It's almost like a dungeon underneath this grand hotel where they prepare this food in horrible conditions. Everyone's like chain smoking. It's filthy. They're pouring sweat all day, surviving off tea and then sending up the fancy looking food up on a dumbwaiter. Emphasis Um, on fancy looking. Yeah, there's a great sequence. And I talk about a little bit about how it's, especially back then, they probably didn't have robust methods for even testing real cleanliness. So it's purely by visual appearance, um, which is even shakier because the people in the hotel are tourists, usually American. (laughs) They have no idea how French food is supposed to look. So they, uh, he talks about like dropping a cooked chicken in sawdust and they just brush it off and send it on up. Once it looks okay, it's deemed healthy enough or clean enough. Um, but so his situation there was as a uh, scullion, basically. He uses a different word for it that I, escapes me, but basically a scullion where he's not a chef. He's like on the lowest rung of the totem pole. Um, he like brings the chefs what they need. 
and it's this horrible game show-esque um, situation where he's trying to like time the toast with preparing the wine, with pulling the chicken out of the oven, with bringing the ice to the person making drinks. And we could um, relate it to flow state in that he talks about those hours as just a void, you know, he's gone because it takes so much focus um, and not at all the kind of intelligence Orwell's practiced throughout his life. Right. Uh, it's that really visceral, just almost athletic intelligence of like timing and spatial awareness, navigating this horrible space. Uh, I think visually it's like the best described section of the book. And it's what I like to show people if I'm trying to get them to appreciate Orwell's nonfiction, because you can feel the heat of the ovens as you read it and also feel that the desperation that has now been so widely glamorized in like these cooking reality shows, right? Uh, like hell's kitchen. And it's, it's the same. It's the exact same cooking culture that exists now in the 21st century. The chef is screaming at everyone cursing. There's a lot of reliance on drugs to, to even exist in the space. So that you can see I'm going on a little bit because that section of the book, I just love, it might be my favorite. I, I thought it was, it was quite, quite powerful when I read it in the review. Um, I want to move on a little bit and, and talk about Kafka. Is Kafka overrated or underrated? Okay. Yeah. I, I have a post on Kafka and I think he's, He's underrated in that the best parts of him are almost what's least discussed. Um, people talk a lot about the horror of Kafka. Yeah. And like how it's about navigating a bureaucracy and how like mind numbingly soul destroying that can be like literally soul destroying where you cease to be a human being because you're trapped in this system that has no human quality. Um, but what they miss is his humor, his sort of strange OCD humor. And what I talk about in, um, my review, his status obsession, a hilarious status obsession <laughs> to what we see in like comedy, you know, like really? a lot of comedy is based on like people that think they're great and are like arrogance is hilarious. Yeah. In a lot of comedy. And he, Kafka loves to get into that. He loves arrogant characters who put down others and like lower uh, status characters who like puff themselves up. Like he really like uh, likes to sit back and laugh at just this sort of, adolescent status obsession that all of us are guilty of and then he relates it to the bureaucracy so i like that he brings sort of our minute status obsession with like how someone phrased something and how it kind of makes us feel like we're less and then he builds that in this larger system of bureaucracy that's also built on status and so we can imagine how these tiny little uh, uh status interactions have resulted in these like mindless systems i like i love that and it really is comedy um david foster wallace uh the famous writer talks about this a lot that you're supposed to laugh at kafka but so so few people do oh that, i i love that i love that and it does remind me of uh the pale king you know where he's like this irs bureaucrat and and david foster wallace goes and takes all these classes and learns about how to become uh you know his his last book he never finished um but yes i i i love that interaction between comedy and status and and the uh how bureaucracy bureaucracies can squeeze the humanity out of out of everyone yeah i actually just recently read the pale king for the first time and the kafka influence is so strong there um he takes it to a more extreme level almost in a yeah. way to help, i feel like americans like translate that comedy into our terms because like he's easy for anyone to laugh out loud at whereas um 
with Kafka, it's a little more subtle and you definitely get that feeling of like, is this a joke? Am I supposed to be laughing at this? Um, which once you realize that is what he's trying to do, um, it's really enjoyable. And in fact, one of the most famous uh, stories about Kafka is people living around him, hearing him laugh uproariously whenever he'd write. He'd always be laughing when he wrote, which is really interesting. I love that. I love that. Um, you know, speaking of, you know, crazy bureaucracies um, and people like, uh, you know, uh, and the hilarity of, of status and status games, uh, The Emperor. How did yeah. you first find find the book and, and, and how did you first get interested in, um, how do you pronounce his first name? I've only ever read it. Oh, the, um, the writer or the Selassie, um, the oh, emperor that, himself. Yeah, I think Selassie. I've heard Selassie, I, but it's like a Rastafarian pronunciation with, gotcha. I think Selassie is okay. But I was, I've actually, I had an interest in Rastafarianism in the sense that it's like this really, this large cult basically that thinks this Ethiopian empire emperor is the reincarnation of Jesus Christ. But because of Bob Marley and reggae music, it's got this mainstream acceptance. And I think right. most people don't even know that that's what they believe. Um, so that was a sort of seeded interest a long time ago. But then um, Matt Lakeman, who has a blog, he reviewed another one of uh, Kapusinski's works. That's about, I think, more wide ranging memoir of all of his travels in Africa. And he mentions the emperor. And I was just instantly sold the idea of a modern journalist reporting on a basically ancient empire that only fell in 1974, you know, after the Beatles broke up. That's just fascinating to me. Um, and I tend to be like a sucker for that. Anything that's like displaced in time. And yeah. that is, let's say North Korea. I think the attraction in North Korea for a lot of people is the same thing. Anything that seems like it should have been in a grainy black and white photo in a history textbook that is still a living, breathing society. It's just fascinating. And I just want to learn more. So once I read his book about Kapusinski's life or his post on Kapusinski's life, I knew that I had to read that book, especially because it's all in interview form. Um, it's at least presented as just the um, various uh, people from the court telling their stories. That, I, that That's so cool. And, you know, how did you, you know, what were the biggest takeaways you got from the book about Selassie? Hmm. That's difficult because that book is a, a big can of worms, but I guess what fascinated me most was this same, it relates back to Kafka. And I, I was so happy of this resonance that what I wrote about Kafka had with this is the sheer pettiness of power and status at every single level. Um, and it's a joke young adults like to make that like high school never ends. It's a cliche at this point. But seeing that expressed at the highest levels of power where the decisions actually affect millions of lives is both funny and bone chilling. Um, I, I think I open with the story of like the person whose job for years was to wipe the pee off people's shoes from Selassie's favorite dog, like who we'd let run free and would pee on dignitary shoes. And so someone's job was just to clean the pee off. Um, so seeing human whim expressed at that level is really fascinating and I think is why studying dictators is so interesting is because when someone has that much power their id and like their their deep psychology is is like actuated in the world because they can get away with anything so you get to see like human failings 
uh, like ac actualized in the world, in decisions, in physical monuments, in policy. Um, but as for the takeaway, I guess, I guess it was that for me, I related it actually to the sort of um, the enlightenment in the founding fathers, thinking that that movement was um, kind of a, a direct resistance against court life is that enlightenment political thinkers realize that court life is the default mode of human organization. Right. And the only way to fight it is to live in a sort of uh, egalitarian tribe, which is pretty much out of the question, or to put in place like strong checks on human incentives so that you can't do what you want. Your personality cannot be expressed through your policy. Um, and basically that there, there's not the entrenchment um, of people like Selassie and his cronies. And so I, I really saw almost a, a weird angle of, of the founding of democracies around the world as a fight against the millennia long default to court life. You know, I, I get this feeling and, and one of the most, one of the parts I really liked about your review, I think is a reminder, you know, to me, I feel like the zeitgeist is very, and the political philosophy zeitgeist is very pro monarchy at this point. Um, and yeah. I don't know if you felt this, um, but, and, and I've always wondered like, uh, you know, there's, there, there's a reason we tried to escape that. And I think this was a great painting of many of the reasons why you, we did. Yes, absolutely. And um, I do shout it out briefly. I didn't want to get into it, but I've read a lot of the neo-reactionary stuff by um, Moldbug. I think I've read all of it. And I, it does fascinate me quite a bit, the idea of these sort of corporate monarchies where you vote by moving, but how there's basically like full authoritarian power in the like localities. It's yeah. fascinating. But reading a book like this, it's just clear how the incentive structure of absolute rule transforms the personalities, not only of the leader, but of every single person around them. And in a sense, every single person in the country, I guess more appropriately, every single person in the capital. But when, when power is arranged and doled out by such a small amount of people, it changes, it, it changes the dynamics of every single social interaction and every resource transaction as well, because there's no like, ladder to status outside of the political will of the emperor um i think it does kill something in people and in a society as a whole um and i, I think the neo-reactionary movement kind of misses that in a yeah. lot of ways that, and, oh go and, ahead sir. and perhaps there's some kind of trade-off you know what i mean that mm -hmm. they, you have it you know is it your sense Selassie was a you know i i haven't reviewed enough like kings or dictators or anything like that to know but you know was he fairly effective, ineffective? Like, where does he come down? Is he just the median, you know, king or dictator? What do you think in terms mm -hmm. of competence? Yeah, it's it's difficult to compare almost apples to oranges if you compare him to, say, a Charlemagne, who, in terms of the court life, it's not that dissimilar. Like, Charlemagne might be from the 700s, but it's really not that dissimilar of an organization. But the... Um, the geography of Ethiopia does present a lot of like serious challenges. And I do try to be as charitable as possible when talking about his track record as a leader, because these famines have been going on in Ethiopia as far back as history records, basically these periodic devastating famines. Um, 
But as for effectiveness, I see him as not so much different than a lot of the other African strongmen, where once his cronies were entrenched around him, his goal was a self-serving, keep me in power. And loyalty to me is like the primary virtue. The people are accustomed now to this level of suffering. We should not really strive to change it. Beyond a few modernization things, what I can say most charitably for him is um, he, he wants to apparently progress the country quicker, but there are other entrenched forces that are stopping him, is what he claims. And I do want to charitably say that that might actually be true, that if he started um, laying down more railroad, um, democratizing certain institutions, that he might have been overthrown much earlier. Um, and there's a trade-off there as well. But I would say his sort of austere image in the eyes of the West is purely because of Mussolini's like invasion of Ethiopia. Um, outside of his speech for the UN and his uh, conduct in World War II, which he, he does project a lot of like a power that I think a lot of people in the West at that time really could respect. Like, here's an old fashioned authoritarian leader who loves his people who isn't an actual European fascist. But meanwhile, during that World War II, I mean, he fled to England. He was right. completely So in terms of effectiveness, I think there's a lot of trappings around him, but he's really not much different than the other African strongmen. Gotcha. Yeah. Like I said, so maybe falls along the median or something as far as those things go. Right. And I think to make a confident assertion of his effectiveness, I would need to study Ethiopian geography a lot more because it's, it's hard to say how much of a problem it really is. Like I would have to know rainfall and like how the agricultural system there works, you know, to, to be confident in that. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, I want to move on a little bit now and talk about another thing you've started writing on Columbine. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So the Columbine massacre, it, it seems like it was the, one of the first, uh, it, at least to me, and perhaps it was because I was very young at the time, and it was the first one I encountered. But it seems like the first, you know, ink, you know, time there was a large mass shooting, um, and there's been many kind of copycats and like, uh, you know, past that. And perhaps it was just like the first one that was really televised and and everyone saw. Um, but how did you get interested in it in in the first place? Yeah, so I've had a passing interest in it for a while, just because. It's one of those tragedies similar to like the Las Vegas um, massacre where I felt like it was kind of made, publicized and then abandoned before any important questions were answered as to motive, as to the underlying root causes of what had happened. And so it was kind of like a nagging thing. As long as I could remember wondering like, why did that happen? Because I had enough information. I knew that the kids were not mentally ill in terms of dissociated from reality. They had good parents. They lived in like upper middle class community. So why would this occur? It's a really strange question. I think a really interesting one. And then when I was actually looking for books to review, I saw this really popular Columbine book that was a New York Times bestseller and was authoritative and sort of rewritten the narrative in an interesting way. It asserts that bullying played basically no role and that the two really? killers were not bullied whatsoever. They were popular. Really? even with girls. Yeah. It makes oh, a no really, way. Yeah. Really strong assertion. And it's kind of rewritten the narrative. Um, it's funny because in this research I see in 2001, there's a wave of talking about bullying. And now in 2009, when this book came out, 
there's a wave of actually there was no bullying they were popular and so this guy with this book has kind of rewritten the history of Columbine um, which in itself I don't think is important but what's important is actually what happened were they actually bullied why what would cause this to happen and I think what has really driven me to actually say I'm going to read 10 books about this and go yeah. into it like uncoupling the different causes and seeing what can make this happen because anytime you talk about violence this extreme coming from seemingly normal people you want to say they were bullied but millions of kids are bullied right psychopaths well the rate of psychopathy is like one percent so there are a lot of (laughs) in the world right high school violent video games and movies millions of kids watch those even if you say abusive parents which they did not have millions of kids have those so what is the finding the cause between these things that actually can't be um, separated as a cause is really fascinating to me. And that's what I'm trying to figure out is where have we gone wrong in talking about these issues where it's such a naughty, impossible mess to figure out why they happened. Man. Well, what's your sense on that? You know, if you had to, had to peg it and like why is often over determined, but it does seem like almost like a unique phenomenon in the U S um, and it may just be access to weapons is, is more readily available, but it does seem like it seems to happen a lot in general. And there's other places that have access to weapons and too. We, you know, we can think of like Sweden or, you know, Germany, et cetera. Yeah. And these things have begun to happen at a quicker clip all over the world. There have been just recently one in Russia, Germany. Um, and I think you can kind of group, even if it doesn't happen with a gun, if the person's intentions are roughly the same, I, right. I would they're basically the same phenomenon because a lot of people can still die. Um, but as to why the sort of idea I'm getting at in, in the article is that I think we have underrated um, the power of ideology. And I think it's an issue in how we infantilize teenagers in the West. Oh, really? If the two killers had been uh, like 22 years old, um, it would have been, talked about in a much different way. And another thing that really got me thinking was actually this documentary called Path of Blood, where um, they recovered the home videos of Al-Qaeda from uh, certain terrorist cells in Saudi Arabia. And so these are young kids, like 17 to 22. Yeah. And they speak and act exactly like the Columbine killers did. And yet we don't hesitate to label them terrorists motivated by an ideology and so what i'm trying to get at is that beyond psychopathy and violent video games and all of that i think we're not we underestimate the power of an ideology to take a disturbed person and have them actualize whatever whatever the rage might be from bullying into violent action because it's i think to me a very similar scenario you take um say teenagers in the Middle East who have also been humiliated in various ways in their lives. They may have some underlying mental illness. And importantly, they perceive the West as a corrupt world order that's trying to sort of take over their world. In much the same way, the um, Columbine killers saw the world itself as like corrupt and irredeemable. So I'm trying to almost take a devil's advocate approach and thinking about them a bit more like domestic terrorists and going through their journals and seeing that they actually did have philosophical ideas that they took very, very seriously. And I see that 
taking a few dangerous ideas very, very seriously is enough to take someone from disturbed teenager to terrorist or school shooter. So, that, so ideas, that's, ideas really do matter. Yeah. And I think what I'm trying to point out most of all is that we know this when it's a teenager in another country, in an impoverished country, maybe. But when it's a teenager in Colorado, we think they must be bullied. They must have bad parents. It must be mental illness. They can't possibly have any kind of structured um, ideology or belief system that would make them do this. When in fact, there's a lot of evidence that they did. Um, one of the killers talks about loving Thomas Hobbes, Friedrich Nietzsche. Really? They talk about a very like in um, loving Stalin and Hitler because of just their ability to exterminate humans, basically. Jeez. So they, have, yeah, I know it's very dark. Unfortunately, <laughs> it's, it's tough. To, it's exhausting to read about, but I think it's a kind of stone that's been left unturned that um, America, we sort of see people before the age of 18 as incapable of being shaped by ideas on the level of becoming violent terrorists so long as they're in the Western world. Um, so that's kind of what I'm trying to get at. I'm still, that's still a work in progress, but I hope to have that post out in the next couple of weeks. I like it. I like it. I like it. Uh, well, Whimsy, I guess more generally as we, as we wrap up here, you know, what led you to writing? You know, has this just been something that's been a thing in your life, you know, since you were a kid? Or has it been something recent where you found like, you know, like, man, I'm, I'm pretty good at this. You are quite good at it. And you want to kind of pursue it a little bit more. Writing has been a thing for me for a long time. I definitely come from a family of readers. Um, I participated in even in like competitive writing and reading stuff in elementary school. Um, it started to... I really first wanted to be a fiction writer and I still spend a lot of my time doing that. But I found that there's a certain, a, a bit of tedium in fiction writing where to get a, to make a story, a vessel for an idea, you kind of risk being a bit of a hack. Even if you're a talented hack, like Ayn Rand or something, right. whose books I have enjoyed, the idea that it's a very inefficient delivery system. I think if you want to write a great story, you should write a great story. But if you have a philosophy or an idea that should be translated to the world, I really do deeply believe, and I think um, Scott's writing at ACX has shaped this belief that, you know, two to 10,000 word blog posts are the best way to communicate to people. I think um, the essay is the most efficient, and it's a cliche at this point that most nonfiction books Could should be, be an essay or blog yeah, post. A five or 10K word essay. And um, that's actually in a really good way, sort of killed dreams I used to have of being a uh, like writing these Malcolm Gladwell-esque books because when I'd sit down to write them I'd feel like this is too long it doesn't right. need to be this but it needs to be this from New York to publish it um so actually I I owe a lot to the community of bloggers around um Astro Codex 10 for making me realize that my instincts were right and these um shorter pieces delivered through like an independent blogging sort of ecosystem is I think the best way to get ideas out there at a, at a quick rate. Um, the hard part now is, is determining level of polish and um, I guess level of controversy I'm willing to broach. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a difficult thing to balance. How do you go about, you know, this is something I've been thinking about a lot recently with my writing, which I don't do much of, but you know, how do you go about determining polish level 
and like uh, when something's ready to shoot out there? I, for me, I have a lot of an easier time with nonfiction for sure. With fiction, I pick it apart and I have no idea what I have at the end of it, if it's any good. But with nonfiction, with the posts I'm writing now, it kind of is a very visceral, I need to polish it until I don't cringe when I read it. Ah, interesting. My my eyes don't catch on a certain phrase. Um, I also try to, I really try to pull out any sort of like, I not, the word isn't candor. I, I hate bombastic writing. And I really am trying not to ever have a ranting tone. And I, so I think that the biggest things for me are finding out what your biggest sort of sins are as a writer and screening for those. Got because it. On my first drafts, I can sort of write in a ranting style just to get it all out. Um, I'm sometimes not rigorous enough in explaining what I mean and what led me to this or that decision. And so screening for my biggest flaws has helped me so much. I like that. Uh, who are who are the big nonfiction writers you look up to? Well, certainly Orwell. I think he might he might actually be number one because I admire his choice in subject matter, being in the right, inserting himself into the right place at the right time to write things that have a way broader resonance. Um, I also love David Foster Wallace, who we just mentioned. Um, he has a great essay about on life on a cruise ship. I love that essay. Yeah, it's fantastic. Uh, yeah, I, I can't remember the title, but it, it's great. It's it's so good. I think it's a supposedly fun thing I'll never do. Yes, that. yes. Um, he's really great for me. If I want to go really older, I really like Montaigne, actually. The sort of nice. original essayist. He's very dense. He can be difficult to read. But if you get at what he's trying to say beyond the sort of archaic language, he, his goals and ideas for what he's writing is really no different from any of these people on Substack or the modern blogging community. He's, he's usually starting with a very difficult but distinct question in investigating it by looking at historical examples, failures in his own life, um, interesting ideas that were in the air at the time. He's really doing nothing different than what's being done now. So I really like him as well. Um, those are three that really leap to mind. Um, I like Hunter S. Thompson a lot too, but I think mainly for his, more as a fiction writer, not yeah. for his, his journalism. I, those I, really pop out. Got it. David Foster Wallace, you know, he feels, you know, you get, have all this always, I'm always seeing this discourse about David Foster Wallace books, you know, infinite, have you read Infinite Jest? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, do you think his fiction writing is, is overrated? or underrated at this point. I I really enjoy the essays. I haven't really gotten into fiction as much, but I really enjoy his essays. I think he's kind of a master essayist. Uh, but yeah, do you think it's like fiction, right? What do you think about his fiction writing? Yeah. Infinite Jest is one of my favorite books. So nice. I, I, I have critiques of him, but I think I, I really do think that's probably the best book the last 20 or 30 years. Oh, and nice. I think if it came out today, it would have a much larger impact even than it did in 1996 really yeah because what he's he's basically writing a book about social media before it existed um because he's really looking at the ways that we fill somewhat meaningless modern lives yeah with addictions basically it's really at its heart a book about addiction um and the two main stories are about a tennis academy 
and a, ha a, a halfway house for people coming back from drug addiction. Um, and I think that what he is getting at with those two stories is really, really important. And I sometimes wish the book didn't have this massive size and the footnotes right. and all these sort of bells and whistles that distract from what the book is actually about and how it important is, how important it is for right now. Also on top of all that, he's extremely funny and he, he is very funny. He's yeah. Very funny. He also, a funny thing about him is that he self-consciously kind of panders, I think to the American reading public in a strange way. He writes the book and like most of his books in this episodic, highly entertaining style we're kind of leaping from i almost want to say seinfeld-esque um like shenanigans of these characters and they can be deeply deeply serious yeah but the conversations are always have almost like tv comedy level line by line entertainment value and so i feel like he at some point had a dark night of the soul and realized i need to make my writing so entertaining that any american would pick it up and accept that it's 1600 pages, except that it's about addiction and hedonism and not be able to put it down because of the pace at which it's written and the sort of wackiness, a very American wackiness injected into a lot of the characters. What, what was the key message you took, it took away? Is that we should be careful about addictions? Is it that, you know, like this new virtualized world is dangerous and it, you know, washes away our human connections. What was the big, big takeaway for you? Um, so I don't want to take credit for this because I think he might've said it himself in an interview, but um, I will say it's a book where I actually don't think it's an overreach to say it's about the sort of Nietzschean death of God, because it's really a book about worship. And I think he said this himself is that every human being is wired to worship in one way or another, and you are going to find something to worship. So you need to find, it sounds kind of Jordan Peterson-ish actually yeah. putting it this way. You need to select something to worship that is actually going to help you construct a workable life. Otherwise you will worship something like a drug, which becomes an addiction that will actually rewire your brain chemistry and kind of ruin you for the rest of life, the rest of life. in that like, it'll ruin you for the normal spectrum of like pleasurable experiences. Um, so I think looking at sort of both the, a cultural hollowness sort of unique to America where people are strangely untethered. They live in suburbs that are fairly anonymous. They might, they go to church at a lower and lower rate. Um, they don't have such strong identifying features or cultural mores. And so there's this vast emptiness that's being filled with entertainment and drugs. Um, and so I, I think, if, if I could bubble it or simmer it down to one small message, it would be you have to be careful with what you worship and um, how you form your identity around that. Definitely. And, and it seems like, uh, you know, I, I, I like his work a lot because, you know, the man himself is very, you know, he, he's very troubled, but, you know, he's, he's trying, he's like trying to tell you like, you know, here are the problems and this is how you deal with them which is a, it's a noble thing to, to try and do, but very difficult at the same time. Yeah. I, I respect him so much. And it, it's a shame that he passed away in 2007 because he kind of, his career then ended on the cusp of everything he cared to write about really. That's right. And it's, it's strange. You, I was actually reading a short story by him this morning and I feel like he's, he's trying to write about the sort of 
plugged in social media experience and the kind of weird cyborg relationship we now have with our phones where like our social network and like a very, it's like a part of our brain is wired to a relationship with the phone. Yeah. And he's trying to write about that, but it hasn't happened yet. So he writes about it in these really weird ways. Like this short story, um, one that I really love is he's writing about a focus group. It's like an 80 page short story. It basically only takes place in a focus group room for like a Twinkie style confectionery suite. <laughs> nice. And he's, it's all about the people's reaction to it and the way they pick apart the sort of marketing messaging of, of the suite. Like he's trying to get at the sort of cynical um, relationship we have now with marketing and social media, but he has to invent the, the sort of structures himself in his stories. It's really interesting to read. I think. I like that. I like that. I'll have to check that one out. Um, uh, I've got one last big question. You know, we've been talking about David Foster Wallace. Do you think great writers are born or are they built or, you know, I, is it just like something that just takes constant practice even for the best? That's an interesting, it's a big question. I, I guess the route I like to take with it that I think people don't talk about enough is what writing, unlike other art forms, I think isn't a skill that exists at all independent of the rest of your personality in your life. Like we can imagine a sort of virtuoso savant painter yeah. who even has like a limited mental faculty, but can paint a colorful image of a bird or something. Whereas you can't really imagine a savant writer with like a limited mental faculty because writing is generally like a reflection of like the sort of really complicated experiences we have in the world. So I think, anyone can be a good writer if they design their life so that they're in the midst of something interesting um, that's worth writing about and talking about. I think a good example is so certain celebrity memoirs are actually, I think, really, really good. Not all of them by any stretch because they've lived a life that's at sort of the crossroads of interesting cultural currents. As long as they write clearly and simply and have some idea of what's interesting about their lives it will be great writing um i'm trying to think of an example i guess one that's fairly good is this um uh, memoir by the tennis player andre agassi oh, yeah. open and so he happened to be it's funny this relates to infinite jest uh, a drug addicted tennis player oh wow that, that's relevant yeah who is driven by his father to be this he had no inborn love for tennis but his father would tape ping pong paddles to his wrists as an infant and oh make God. him hitting balls. Yeah. And so not to glorify that at all. Um, but by virtue of having a life like that, he's become a good writer because he instantly has interesting experiences to draw on. I don't want to just say interesting, I, I guess profound experiences that reflect larger problems in society that have resonance with other people. And I think that kind of makes you a good writer. Um, as long as you express yourself somewhat clearly. It, it seems like a broad theme I've gotten from you is, uh, and it's something I had not thought about before in, in, in the context of writing, but having something interesting to say and having a good eye for that seems to be really important. It's something you definitely have, you know, just in reading your selection of book reviews, it's, you know, you're definitely heading the right track, which is super exciting. Oh, thank you. And um, to, to bring it back to the Orwell review, actually, I ended on that, which is what I like most about Orwell, and I think is missing in modern journalism, is all Orwell had to do 
to write this amazing book that I think will be remembered a long time was have the courage to live this way and write about it honestly. And you don't have to be a genius to do it. And I think it's might be Harold Bloom or some famous literary critic likes to hammer on the fact that Orwell is not a literary genius in any sense. Um, he has no special way with words. He's a competent writer, but it's his selection of uh, subject matter that no one else dared to select at that time that makes him special. And I think that's something missing now is um, in journalism, especially is people write about the same topics over and over again and try to create controversy when there's enough controversy out in the world already. Right. Interesting. And you simply need to like inject yourself into it in some meaningful way. And so I think that's what I admire most about um, Orwell and the other writers I listed is their ability to identify an interesting problem. I think that's probably the most important thing for a writer. And that's uh that, that actually goes back to what you were saying about, you know, David Foster Wallace, you know, these things are so virtualized now. And I think people miss that. You know, I, when I look at modern journalism, that's what I think people are missing. And I think, uh, you know, we probably shouldn't say on the podcast because then we'd be letting the, the secret out. But that's kind of the $20 bill on the sidewalk I see for, for writing today is that you could really, really um, – it's kind of an inadequate equilibrium where you could really get ahead in, in a very real sense and get to the Pareto frontier, which is very exciting. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, I think because journalism has grown so competitive now with the yeah. sort of model, it really limits what these large um, newspapers and other media outlets can do. They have to usually have something that can easily um, like be proven to, to bring in a lot of clicks. Yeah. Or it has to be a name journalist. And then the sort of really special interest pieces are determined by the whims of those few big name journalists. That's right. Yeah. Which so is, is a weird incentive model. I, have you heard of default friend, Catherine D by any chance? I don't think so. Okay. You, you should look her up. She, 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 we had her on the show recently. She talks a lot about these models of how, you know, journalism is so bottom up now and, and these things filtered up from these online communities. Anyway, oh, cool. just sign that. Hello. Um, well, whimsy, thank you so much for taking the time to come on. Where can people find your work? Where should we send them? Yeah, thanks. I had a great time. Awesome conversation. Um, so they can find me on some Substack at Whimsy, like W-H-I-M-S-I, -I, like whimsical without the cull at the end. And um, I don't have too much up there yet. I have a few articles. Next one coming will be about why did Columbine happen? I think that's my working title. It's very, very simple. Um, and that's the only place I'm at right now, really online. And um, for the time being, I'm choosing to remain anonymous because I don't want to censor myself by choosing something right. controversial. Because unfortunately, I have supporting friends who, if they knew, they would all read it. <laughs> and uh, if I wrote something controversial, you know, that might uh, be bad. So for now, I want to remain anonymous. But I hope people check out the Substack and find something interesting on there. And there's a, I, I want to tell the audience there's, there's a ton of good stuff on there. I highly recommend you check it out. Well, thank you very much, Whimsy. I had a great time. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Narratives.